Welcome to Business Lens Broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined as always by Chris Hill, host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America, fresh off your conference. What, what, what was up with the Motley Fool conference? It sounded amazing. I heard a bunch of great podcasts that came off of it. Um, just give us the thumbnail on that. We have an annual investing conference for our members. Uh, it was for the first time in three years, it was in person uh, in Washington, D.C. We're at the uh, the Grand Hyatt Hotel in downtown Washington, D.C. Um, but we also streamed it because uh, so many of our members were not able to be there in person. And it was really two days of investing stock talk, investing strategies, but we had and I've been involved in every one of our events for more than a decade. We had what I think might be the strongest investing lineup of speakers we've ever had, top to bottom. Uh, Brian Fairbanks is the CEO of Trex, uh, an amazing company at the, at the center of real estate. Um, Morgan Housel, best-selling author of The Psychology of Money. Annie Duke, a former professional poker player who uh, parlayed that into a career in venture capital and, and uh, decision strategy, uh, wrote a great book called Thinking in Bets. And she has another new book coming out later this fall about knowing when to quit, uh, which you would think a poker player would be good at that. Uh, Jenny Abramson, a, a phenomenal venture capital uh, investor here in the Washington DC area. So anyway, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was great to be at our first in-person event in three years because we've been doing them uh, over Zoom for the last couple of years. So uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully we do more of this uh, in 2023 and beyond. Well, if any of that was appealing to our listeners, I would suggest checking out the Motley Fool Money podcast stream. Some of the highlights uh, showed up there. You covered some of it and you had some great outtakes. And of course, people can... Uh, they can always avail themselves of Google um, to to find <laughs> a lot of this content, you know, and you can just kind of browse through. But there there was some really really interesting stuff, just kind of across the board of everything you cover: the economy, business, investing, strategy, psychology, you know, sports, etc. So fantastic stuff. Um, speaking of across the home stretch, we have kind of a, a home stretch type discussion topic here. Uh, we're coming down the home stretch of the end of the year. We've gotten through back to school. That's one of the big benchmarks that, that you look for. And we're kind of looking toward the buildup for hiring for the holiday season and kind of how we're going to close out the year. How is it looking and what are you looking for now? I'm looking for more commentary from major retailers. I expect we'll get that in the next couple of weeks in terms of seasonal hiring, not just from the likes of Walmart and Amazon and Target, but also from FedEx and UPS. Uh, I think that gives us a good indication. We've heard a little bit of commentary so far from smaller retailers that are expecting the holiday season of 2022 to be better than the holiday season of 2019, um, which uh, at least some of the retailers are using as, as a comparison, because that was obviously the last uh, holiday season we had before the pandemic. Um, I, I think it's uh, worth watching because so much of what drives the U.S. economy is uh, consumers and consumer shopping. Um, so uh, we'll see what we get out of the major retailers. 
Um, but hopefully we're, we're going to get what we've got in the last couple of years, which is a few hundred thousand people being hired for seasonal work. Um, we know what a challenge it's been on the hiring front for full-time employees. Hopefully um, we see a little bit easier time when it comes to the seasonal work. So in terms of things to watch, you talked the last time we were together about keeping an eye on that holiday surge in, in hiring, what that would look like, and what that could do sort of in the macro economy to interest rate and inflation pressures. Obviously, those are things you're keeping an eye on. I'll tell you, from my standpoint, I don't really know what to make of the economic indicators that we're getting these days. For example, there was a relatively strong jobs report last week, 315,000 hirees. And at the same time, the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7% from its 50-year historic low of 3.46. So what that seems to suggest is if you're hiring, but you're showing more people as unemployed, that means that more people, your denominator is bigger, more people are looking for work. That's good. People are coming in off the sidelines, labor force participation rate ticking up. That would seem to put downward pressure on inflation. Those are kind of good signs. On the other hand, we've had this volatile stock market situation kind of rising and falling on the comments of Jerome Powell. They seem to be um, absolutely trying to gain you know, credibility on the on on the inflation issue. I what are you what are you making now of the various tea leaves? And is there anything that's kind of really standing out to you as something to be reading and paying attention to? Well, I think there are a couple of things worth watching. Um, and you're absolutely right. I think that you know some people referred to the jobs report last week as the Goldilocks jobs report. And I think that's right. You know, it it really was sort of you know just right. It was it showed growth. It showed people coming back into uh, the labor force looking for jobs. You know, that's sort of what we what we wanted to see. Um, in terms of uh, the interest rates, that will continue to be something that people watch. Um, I think that's part of why it was called the Goldilocks report because I think if it had been, you know, five hundred thousand jobs, uh, we would have seen an extreme reaction from the market um, based on what they think that would do for interest rates. I think you'd see the same thing if it was a hundred thousand jobs instead of the, uh, I believe it was three hundred eighteen thousand. So it was, it was right about where economists thought it was going to be. So hey, shout out to the economists; they they nailed this one for the first time in a while. Um, but I, I think the, the other thing, Matt, to keep an eye on is um, acquisitions. Mm. I think that, um, look, overall, the first two-thirds of the year, it's not been good for the stock market. Um, 2021 was a great year. Um, we've seen the, the market as a whole give uh, some of those gains back. And we're seeing now what we typically see, which is... Uh, large companies that have a lot of cash on the balance sheet are able to take advantage of that uh, either by absorbing some of the costs uh, that are rising and some of their input costs that can be labor as well. Um, but we're seeing them also pick off smaller competitors um, who are struggling and don't have the cash uh, to really make it through tough times. So I think watching acquisitions as a whole, um, and in particular, watching uh, acquisitions like we saw um, uh, earlier today with uh, CVS Health um, buying a home care health company called Signify Health, $8 billion acquisition, and it was all in cash. 
Um, companies can fund an acquisition with their own stock if they want, but I think you're going to be seeing more acquisitions in cash uh, over the next four to call it 12 months. Well, that's interesting. So just like we've talked about for individual investors, when the market's down, it, it also presents an opportunity to buy things at a discount. Sounds like it's the same thing for companies. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it's always been that way. And I think that's, that's just one more thing to keep an eye on, um, which is why when it comes to, to buying stocks, um, 2022 for me personally has been the year of investing in large profitable companies. Um, they might be boring, uh, but this does not seem like a great time for me anyway, to invest in, a lot of small, unprofitable growth companies where, it, you know, if I'm not 100% sure they're going to be around as a standalone public company in three years, I'm not buying shares right now. Well, I'll tell you, in terms of that psychology and that skittishness, the thing that I'm watching, and I'm, I'm going to put in a shameless plug for a second for a recent show, Beyond Politics, we had Dr. Joanne Shu, who is the director of the University of Michigan Survey of Consumers, which is one of the most watched economic indices, metrics that are out there. It's something that you hear Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Fed Chair Jerome Powell talk about all the time. It's sort of the best consolidated look at how consumers are feeling about the economy. It's highly correlated with actual real-world growth, and it also serves as a very good indication of how well-off people are feeling. Do they feel like they have money in their pockets to spend, which is, as you just said, the really critical factor, especially as we head into the holiday season, in terms of consumption. So I'll be keeping an eye on that. Their next tranche of data, their initial September numbers, come out September 16th. And that'll be right in time for your next appearance on this show. So I'm sure we'll have plenty to unpack about that. Speaking of big news that's about to emerge, you wanted to talk about technology. You wanted to geek out on Apple. What's uh, what's the big news there? Apple is uh, having their uh, event that they typically have uh, pretty quickly after Labor Day. And they're going to be unveiling the newest version of the iPhone. Um, Apple being Apple, they will probably have one or two surprises as they typically do. So uh, I, I don't follow the company closely enough to have a prediction on what the surprises might be. But I think for, for investors, it's enough to uh, know that this cycle is continuing. And, and Apple really has defied the odds over the past decade as being the company that can continue to maintain high price point for consumer technology. Um, so that's a good news for shareholders that whatever is the, um, the latest and greatest version of the iPhone that they're going to roll out with their um, improved battery life and improved cameras and pixel resolution and all those different things that they will charge over a thousand dollars for. Um, again, that's good for shareholders. Good for consumers like me who have a really old iPhone. I believe I have an iPhone 7, and tomorrow they're going to be uh, unveiling the iPhone 14. Um, so for consumers who are looking to upgrade their iPhone, good news. Just wait a little bit longer, and pretty soon uh, your local store is going to be looking to offload the iPhone 8, 9, 10, 11, all of those phones that once upon a time were the latest and greatest, and they were the phone that was being uh, charged $1,000 for, 
now they're going to be available for a fraction of that price. So I'm personally looking forward to that. I learned in that documentary, The Usual Suspects, that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to make the world believe he didn't exist. And to me, the greatest trick the devil of Apple ever pulled was to sort of lure all of us into this insane psychology that they've set up for us where you pay $1,000 for the snazzy new iPhone. It's immediately obsolete. And then you have FOMO and you're kicking yourself that you just bought the darn thing because now there's something way better that's rendered what you had. You know, it makes it not stack up so well. And everything that you just paid $1,000 for now costs half of that because it's so obsolete. And somehow people keep lining up for this. Chris, this literally happened to me six months ago. I also had an iPhone 7. I'm not making this up. I had the exact iPhone you did. I liked it. It had the button. You know, you you press the home button and they were getting rid of it. I'm like, I don't like this. This scares me. It's like the transition (laughs) from my old BlackBerry to the iPhone. It's like, if I don't have physical buttons, I'm going to lose my mind. Well, if I didn't have a home button, I thought, you know, the world was going to end. I resisted. I resisted. Finally, the thing was just breaking down. Couldn't complete a call. I was like, all right, got to do it. Got the iPhone 13. I paid through the nose. (laughs) And now you're here to tell me that I wasted my time. My iPhone that I'm using right now to time this show for radio is a stack of you know what. And uh, I should feel terrible about myself. How did Apple pull this off? I think they pulled it off by watching what the automotive industry has done since the 1950s. Right? I mean, isn't this what the automotive industry has done for so long? Yes. Yes. You drive the car off the lot, it loses what, two thirds of its value? uh, Not quite two thirds, but it loses, uh, you know, something like 20% of its value, something like that. But but yeah, this is this is what the automotive industry has done for decades and decades. It's like you you buy the new Honda, Toyota, uh, Ford, whatever, whatever, they all do it. And then the next year, the same version comes out, but a few more bells and whistles and slightly more expensive, but they offer financing. So it's okay. So I think that's how they've pulled it off. Uh, Samsung is certainly trying to do the same thing. Google has not had the same level of success with its Pixel phone, but if they ever get some traction there, I think they'll start doing the same thing. It's interesting that they're trying to follow that strategy because right now it really connects to something that Annie Duke said at your investing conference, which is her new book is all about when it's time to quit. We always make the decision to quit too late. And if you're beginning to wonder, should I quit? Chances are you probably should have six months ago. And this keeps coming up with the iPhone. I keep feeling like I need to re-up with the iPhone because, you know, sunk costs, right? It's the sunk cost fallacy. I've already bought into the Apple ecosystem. I'm not going to jump now to Samsung or Google or whatever. I've got to stick with it. So I've got to plus up to the next level of iPhone. I probably should have quit the iPhone a long time ago, but now you're telling me the other phone makers are going to follow the same strategy and eventually they're going to make me pay a thousand bucks for the new models anyway. So there's no getting ahead in this world. I'm thoroughly depressed. Thanks for that, Chris Hill. Hey, speaking of rapid changes in the world, when you and I were younger, which was distressingly long ago, you know, there was this thing called television and you'd watch shows on television, and the biggest shows were part of the primetime lineup, I'm air quoting here, on broadcast television. There used to be a thing for our younger listeners called Must See TV, where NBC had two hours of programming on Thursday nights that were its biggest shows, and it was its tentpole, yada, yada, yada. Now comes the news that NBC is thinking of cutting back 
an hour of that prime time. They are almost literally almost cutting their own tent pole in half because it's just not that valuable anymore. Um, I guess the world is ending, Chris. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, every nothing, nothing stays. So my gosh, did this like smack you in the brain the same way it did me? It did. And maybe it shouldn't have because other than uh, Sunday night football, I don't remember the last time I tuned into NBC uh, in the prime time to watch uh, one of their shows. Mm. Um, but now that being said, this is pretty incredible that they are considering cutting an hour of prime time that they would essentially go to their affiliates and say, we're going to stop national broadcasting at 10 p.m. 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock is all yours. Do with it what you will. Now, one of the potential ripple effects of this is what they would do with the Tonight Show. Would they move the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon up? And and let's let's bring it back to the business part here. When it comes to the economics of network television, late night television is staggeringly profitable. Mm. Uh, the the networks love their late night shows because they they are insanely profitable. Primetime television can be very expensive to produce. That's why we've seen so much reality, quote unquote, reality television, is those shows are cheaper to produce. But typically, 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock, it's, it's more um, primetime dramas. They're more expensive to produce. Um, this is an interesting trial balloon that the corporate parent, Comcast, which is the owner of NBC, has floated. We'll see if they go through with it. And then, of course, the thing to see is, how do you react if you are Disney the parent company of ABC. You know, how does CBS react to this? How does Fox react to this? Um, I, I'm, I'm really not sure where they're going to go. But if you want to just sort of look at the, the past decade of ratings, um, I, I actually did a little prep for the show, uh, uh, Matt, and I went and I'm looked honored. <laughs> I went and looked at, well, what, what are the highest rated network television shows this calendar year? And what is the audience? And then I went back and looked 10 years ago. What was the highest ranked network mm. television show in 2012? And what was the audience? It's the same show for both. It's Sunday Night Football yes. on NBC. The difference is 10 years ago, the audience was 21 million people. This year, the audience has been 17 million people. And the steady decline of network television, we've seen it in the awards every year with the Emmy Awards. It's the streaming services and the cable services that get far more uh, of the lion's share of award nominations and uh, awards themselves. And you can look at that and say, well, it's awards. Who cares about that? No, that's, you know, the old, what's the old uh, adage that we all learned from uh, all the president's men? Follow the money. And it's the same thing in television and movies. Follow the awards and see if you follow the awards, then you're following the money. Well, two quick thoughts. First of all, just to put in a plug for one of the biggest podcasts out there, doesn't need my help, but Bill Simmons podcast, actually, he just had a terrific interview with Dick Ebersole, the longtime NBC executive who is responsible for Sunday Night Football and Saturday Night Live and all kinds of other things. 
And it was just really fascinating. And that, that move in the mid 2000s to recognize that Monday night football had never won its time slot. And there was an opportunity to dominate Sunday night. It was just, it was fascinating. If you're interested in the business of entertainment, the business of television, great insights. And he has a new book out in which he shares a lot more in that. So commend that to all of our listeners. It's just, it is so fascinating connecting to our last discussion. It would be like if Apple stopped making the Macintosh computer, it would be like, you know, if, I don't know, uh, if, if, a, if a car maker, if Toyota stopped making the Camry, it's just, it's just so strange to see. And it does speak to a rapidly, rapidly evolving landscape. And speaking of which, that's a perfect segue, that confluence of football and the entertainment landscape to talking about, are you ready for some football? Are you a prime member? I hope you are because Chris Hill, because starting next week, uh, Thursday night football is only going to be available on Amazon prime. Let me come back to this. Um, just real quick. I'll put in a plug for another podcast. I just listened to the latest episode of Conan O'Brien's podcast, which is Ooh. entitled Conan O'Brien needs a friend. His guest is James Burroughs. Um, oh. One of the preeminent uh, leaders in Sit, uh, sitcom history. James Burroughs, one of the creators of Cheers. Um, he made his bones uh, directing Mary Tyler Moore and Bob Newhart and Taxi and Friends and all, you know, and Will and Grace. Uh, the series finale of Cheers in 1993, 84 million viewers. Okay. So that's nearly 30 years ago. 84 million viewers, compare that to the 17 million viewers that Sunday Night Football has gotten. That's your clubhouse leader uh, for, for 2022. But yes, uh, I, as a fan of the NFL, I am excited that the season starts this coming weekend. As an Amazon Prime uh, member, I'm not at all worried about my ability to watch uh, the Kansas City Chiefs and the LA Rams play on uh, September 15th, but I do wonder how many people who don't have Amazon, how many sports bars don't have Amazon prime. And all of a sudden they're going to be scrambling saying, wait a minute, how are we going to show, how are we going to show the game? If we don't have Amazon prime, which had been uh, one of the networks showing Thursday night football games, but this year they become the exclusive network. And so that's the only way you're going to see that game. And I think the larger trend it speaks to is the way that, uh, you know, the, that streaming, uh, streaming services have gone not just into programming, but into live sports. Um, it's not going to surprise me if Apple Plus goes even further into Major League Baseball than it has done this year. And uh, I think Amazon Prime, um, they're going to make enough money off of the advertising because they have an advertising business within Amazon they're going to make enough money off of that, that um, uh, it's not going to surprise me if a couple of years from now, they start bidding for games on the weekend as well. Wow. Well, look, I mean, first of all, this is why I decided that resistance was futile and I got assimilated by Amazon Prime and never been happier. My captors treat me well. The food is tasty and nourishing. <laughs> I also, you know what I'm going to do? Since you humble bragged a moment ago about prepping for this show, in the <laughs> one minute remaining, I'm going to throw you a wild curveball. Let's see how you handle this. Chris Hill, host of Motley Fool Money, number one stock investing radio show in America. Do you see a prospect for streaming consolidation in the future? Because what people are talking about now is there's something they want to watch. They think it's on broadcast. No, no, no. They got peacocked. They have to watch it on Peacock. 
and you're seeing this splintered streaming environment and you got to pay for seven different services. Is that the way that they're going to capture more consumer dollar? Are some of these things going to start to merge in the next few years? I don't think it's in the next few years, but I, I think 10 years from now, we could absolutely see a situation where one of the major streaming services, because uh, we've already seen over the last few years, some of the smaller niche streaming services get acquired. Uh, and it makes sense. There are people who, you know, um, uh, two of my kids love Japanese anime. Um, which is probably the dominant thing on Netflix that is viewed in my home. Um, so uh, I, I think it's going to be a while before we see a major streamer and their original content get acquired by someone else. I can't get a curveball by you. That's because you hit everything out of the park, Chris Hill. And if you want to see that, you better have Apple TV. All right, for Chris Hill and myself, Matt Robeson, we'll see you next time.